0: Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker. Today, I'm speaking with author Todd Myers, whose Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems, is being published by Imagine, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Todd. Good afternoon. Good to talk with you. Would you start us off with an excerpt from your book, please? Sure, so let me set this up a little bit.
1: Uh, This is about really cool technology, and the reason I chose this is because this was one of the things that sort of inspired my thinking about this issue generally, about how access to small technologies is changing how we fight environmental pollution and problems. So it's about a thing called the Invest Eggator, which is a fake turtle egg that allows people to stop turtle poaching. Um, And I'll just talk a little bit about um, them trying to deploy it and learning about how to use this technology, and then we can discuss it. So it's from page 161 of my book. It says, there were many failures. Most of the eggs were never poached. Uh, Helen Fesey, who is the researcher uh, who's doing this, and her team marked the location so that they go back and retrieve them later. Sometimes poachers figured out what was happening. The first time one of the eggs was poached, she opened up the tracking app to see where it was. It was the first uh, one I had, and I was bouncing off the walls, said Feezy. We looked at the track, and it was inside a riverbed where a poacher had thrown it in. In another case, a poacher took the egg apart and sent photos to a Costa Rican anti poaching NGO asking what it was. We said it was temperature testing, said Feezy. Ultimately, her persistence paid off. Despite planting dozens of eggs, none had produced a complete track from the nest to the market, and Feezy was getting frustrated. It was a nightmare. On the last night of their effort, she was tired and almost didn't go out. And as luck would have it, it was that night that yielded the best results. One nest got poached, and it was one with my egg. It was a joyous night, she said, noting she felt strange celebrating poaching. They tracked the egg as it moved across the country, finally stopping 137 kilometers from where it was deployed. I started looking at the map, and it is a supermarket, and they were in the loading bay. There is no reason for the egg to be at that place, said Feezy. I drove there myself, and it was a dodgy back alley. Later, the egg moved to a residential area where poachers will sell eggs door-to-door as a snack. They are not fulfilling people's protein need in an impoverished situation. They are a bar snack. They are a treat item. The experience proved the viability of the technology. The egg was durable enough and had enough battery power to be tracked across the country, exposing the entire poaching network from poacher to buyer. Feezy believes that there is potential not only for sea turtles, but for other wildlife crimes. Other countries have problems with poaching of crocodile eggs, she said. You'd have to change your strategy about deploying them, she said with a laugh. So that talks just a little bit about how technology is maximizing and multiplying the efforts of anti poaching efforts in Central America. And like I said, it was one of the first technologies that really got me thinking about and excited about the opportunity of small technologies to fight some of our biggest environmental problems.
0: And uh, can you orient us in time in terms of the specific technology about when was this, you know, sort of, you know, fake egg scheme put into play? So the
1: Investigator is about four years old, um, but really has been deployed in the last few years. So they started deploying it right before COVID. But after COVID hit, it was really important because the group who deployed these and came up with this idea is a group called Paso Pacifico. They work primarily in Nicaragua, but throughout Central America. And once COVID hit, they said that their efforts with individual people on beaches trying to stop poaching really shut down uh, because people just weren't allowed to go out and poaching was rampant. And so you need an alternative to people on the ground, something that can maximize your efforts, something that can track and doesn't, you know, you don't have to have lots of people on the beach. So the power of this technology was really proven when COVID hit. So that's, that's sort of the time frame.
0: So let's sort of take a step backwards, and if I've done my homework correctly, at one point you were Director of Public Relations for the Seattle Supersonics of the NBA, and uh, then Director of Public Affairs for the Seattle Mariners. So can you talk about how you transitioned from that work, which... Uh, you know, based on my knowledge of other sports teams would involve trying to sell as many season tickets as possible, you know, promoting the the sports and individual athletes. It doesn't necessarily seem like a logical, you know, next career step to go from that to becoming the director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center and someone who's been described as one of the nation's leading experts on free market environmental policy. I have taken a circuitous route. There is no doubt. So yeah, so I worked in sports uh, when
1: I was younger and I loved it. I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, But one thing I found was that while sports was very fun and I still am a huge sports fan, it wasn't as meaningful as I would like. So I actually had worked in politics and public policy before. I went back to that I ran a campaign in Washington state where I live. We have a position called commissioner of public lands, who was a statewide elected official that manages millions of acres of state land and is sort of the top environmental um, elected official in the state. Um, and he won. Um, and I uh, knew more about campaigning than I did about environmental policy. So when I went to work for the department of natural resources, after he won, I spent about a year walking around forests and talking with foresters and biologists and learning about spotted owls and old growth. And it was just absolutely fascinating to me. And one time I remember standing in a forest with somebody with a forester and saying, you know what you're telling me I've never heard in public before. And he sort of chuckled and said, yeah, none of this is what makes it into the public discourse. Well, I was hooked then because I just thought it was interesting All the good science, all the interesting information that doesn't get translated into public policy. And it is the fundamental problem that I've been working on for the last 20 years of my environmental career, which is how to make sure that politics and public policy reflect good science and what is actually happening in the ground, which I think too often doesn't happen. And that's where I got excited about these small technologies is because it shortens the distance between people and the environmental problem they're trying to solve. There's no political intermediary. You can do it yourself and make sure that you're getting the results you want. And that's really exciting.
0: So just before I sort of lose the thread, I'm just sort of curious, is there anything from your experience working with the Supersonics and the Mariners that you found useful in your uh, current more uh, meaningful endeavors? Absolutely. One of the biggest things I found is
1: that it's fun to be a sports fan and, um, I have lots and lots of sports paraphernalia and jerseys and things like that, but I recognize that it is fundamentally irrational. My attachment to a particular team and things like that is not based on any sort of logical calculation. But that's the fun of it, right? Unfortunately, a lot of, I see a lot of that in politics these days. People choose a team. They are on team A or team B. And how they act... Uh, about policy reflects either team A or team B rather than the results on the ground. And I and so I see a lot of the sort of the fandom, the, the team spirit, which is good in sports, but I think bad in politics. Um, and I, that's one of the things that my book is trying to get around is how can we make decisions that are based more on results, effectiveness, and accountability rather than just my side wants this.
0: So your previous book or one of your previous books was uh, Echo Fads, How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism is Harming the Environment. You know, just by the title of this current book, it has its more optimistic leaning. What led you to write this book at this time? In many ways, this book is a response to my last book. My last book, EcoFads,
1: um, was about the problems that I saw, sort of what you just hit on, which is that a lot of our environmental policies are based on what makes us feel good. It is good to want to help the environment and to feel good about helping the environment. But we have to make sure that we're not misled by doing things that make us feel good rather than are effective. Some of the most effective environmental policies are really sort of unsexy and mundane. And if what we end up choosing is always the sexy and, um, you know, thing that makes us feel good, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And politicians, even the sincere ones, often don't know uh, what to choose. If they're presented with two sides, um, they're not a biologist often, they're not an economist often, so what they do know is the, what will appeal to the public and what will appeal to their supporters. And that becomes the way they choose. And I've seen this, you know, I'm not against government. I've worked in government agencies. I currently work on a government panel on salmon recovery. I think government can do a lot of things, but I also understand that decisions are not always made optimally. So that's what my last book was about. And what this book is about is how we can solve that problem. And again, it is by using technologies and connecting people directly to environmental solutions rather than
0: having to outsource the environment to politicians, which doesn't always work. And for the benefit of our listeners who may not have yet have read your book, but hopefully will after this conversation, can you just give a couple of examples, perhaps some that uh, you would consider relatively easy for the average person to do if such an individual exists and some that perhaps are a little more challenging? Yeah. So
1: I'll give you sort of two types of examples. One is uh, things people can do. And one is how small, simple technologies are making a difference in the world um, in a really exciting way. So the first is, is that people talk about a lot of our focus on reducing CO2 emissions and the risk from climate change is government policies, more renewables, things like that, but a huge area is actually reducing demand or shifting how we use electricity. Most electricity is used uh, during the early evening, what is called the peak hours, and those hours are not only the most expensive electricity, but they're the most carbon intensive, because to meet demand, typically what you have to do is turn on either coal or natural gas plants. If we can encourage people Simply to shift their demand outside of those hours, either earlier when there's solar energy or later in the evening when there is more wind and things like that, and you don't have to turn on new plants. That alone can make a big difference. And the evidence is in the recent California climate uh, or rather um, energy crisis, at the moment they were reaching sort of peak demand, only 8% of their energy was from renewables. So it was a lot of natural gas, a lot of imported electricity. So they were worried about blackouts. So they sent a text out to people saying, look, we're we're at risk of blackouts. Can you turn off, you know, whatever you don't need? And instantly, the amount of demand that they had dropped 5% in five minutes and averted the crisis. So not only did that avert the crisis, but it also reduced demand for carbon intensive energy. More demand was shed in those five minutes than all of the battery power in California. That shows you how powerful this is of giving people information and the ability to do that. And we can do that with smart thermostats and a variety of other things that I talk about in the book every day, not just in those
0: crisis moments. So just following up on the example you just gave of smart thermostats, are technologies um I'm using the term sort of loosely from sort of my ignorance, but are things like that adequately you know, subsidized by the government or sort of tax credits or incentives given? Because it's one thing to say, gee, the technology is there. But if someone is saying, you know, yeah, if it's affordable, I'll put a smart thermostat in my house and do something relatively simple that – as you say, you know, uh, in the aggregate can actually make a difference, but it would seem that there might be a role for the politicians to make that easier for people to do. So there are some regulatory
1: barriers to doing that. For instance, um, in Washington State and some other states where I live, um, there the rules on how prices are set don't reward a lot of that energy savings. But- Um, In many cases, you don't actually need subsidies because, as I said, the most carbon-intensive energy in the evening is also the most expensive. And so if you can simply show people, look, you're spending a lot more now than you would if you waited three hours to turn on your dishwasher or clothes dryer, or if you had done it earlier, that it will, in many cases, pay for itself. In the UK, there is a utility called Octopus Energy that price is based on demand and, and sort of following that same carbon intensity. And what they do is they, they show people, here's how much it's going to cost you. And people's bills are actually lower as a result of doing this because, and reducing their carbon intensity, not because there's government subsidies, but because they simply reflect the prices that, that are in the market and give people the tools to do that. 10, 15 years ago, we couldn't have done that. We simply didn't have the personal technology to do to get that real-time information. Now we do, and there's lots of cool ways to do that that don't require government intervention, but simply reward carb- reducing your carbon emissions because the prices of carbon-intensive energy during peak hours are more
0: expensive. And is there a role in terms of making that easier for the consumer of uh, what's been referred to as the Internet of Things. In other words, you know, albeit as someone who is a little freaked out by uh, by that concept and by artificial intelligence, yeah. you know, but if all these uh, uh, AI's ability to sort of talk to each other, so, you know, you program your dishwasher to say, you know, link up with this part of the grid. And, you know, you're automatically going to run the dishes and turn yourself off at a time when it's going to be cheaper for me, the owner, Then it's one less thing for me to do.
1: Yes. Yeah. The Internet of Things is is opening up a lot of opportunities, but there are some risks. So let me talk about both of those things. So I actually have in my uh, electric panel a thing called Sense. And Sense is a little orange box that you just clip onto the wires going into your house. And then it will sense the electricity going into your house and uses artificial intelligence to look at the unique signature of the uh, electrical signals and determine what uh, appliances you're using and it'll say okay you're using a lot here um, your light bulbs are using a lot your your dishwasher is using a lot things like that until you how you can conserve and it does that using artificial intelligence and the internet of things. I mean, I could look at my phone right now. I also have solar panels that'll tell me, okay, you're use here's how much your solar panels are generating uh, compared to how much you're using so that I can conserve. So the concern is, okay, so if we do this, if we're handed all of this electric or this all this power from the internet of things, Can people spy on us? Can people control, do things like that? Cybersecurity becomes a big concern. And so I talk about that in the book. The Pacific Northwest National Lab, actually, which is in Washington state where I live, which is one of the U.S. Department of Energy National Labs, has an amazing program on Internet of Things sort of determining the background of how these things work and work together so that they can detect intrusions and they can detect when somebody has taken it over. So um, there's a lot of work going on to make sure that the Internet of Things can be very productive, that we can achieve the promise of IoT
0: tools um, without having to worry constantly about cybersecurity. So there are two of the chapter titles really sort of left out. me means my favorite. So Without uh, spoiling too much of their contents, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about them. So the first one is, how transparency and blockchain make fish and chocolate better, parentheses, but not together, close parentheses. Can you just sort of, sort of tease a little bit about what that chapter deals with?
1: Yeah. So obviously, climate change is not the only environmental concern we have. Overfishing of the oceans is a big one, and illegal fishing plays a big part in that. So what you want to make sure is if you're buying tuna or any other fish, that you want to know that it was caught sustainably by somebody who was responsible. Well, how can you know that? Well, one way is to have a uh, track, um, what they call from bait to plate, which is that the minute you pull that fish up, that you can track it all the way To you, either buying in a restaurant or in a grocery store. And blockchain is a way to do that. Um, And the blockchain is simply a transparent database that puts every stop along the way of that fish. So on the boat, processing, shipping, things like that to where you're going. And blockchain, because it's open and transparent and can't, um, and anybody can see it and it's very difficult to manipulate, you you have much more faith in it. So I talked with a guy in Fiji um, who has a program called Traceable, um, and it's all about using blockchain, making it easy so that the good actors, so the people who are sustainable, who are fishing, can show you, look, here's where I caught it, here's where it lives along the the entire supply chain to your house. And then you can buy from those uh, fishers um, rather than wondering, is what I'm buying really sustainable? And it gives you that much more certainty. You could do the same thing with chocolate. There's a really uh, cool program that was selling chocolate um, and it was made in Ecuador. And not only could you use uh, blockchain to see where the chocolate was from, but you could also, it would give you either a token to buy more chocolate or to plant more trees, more chocolate trees for the farmers. And it used blockchain to show you exactly where your tree was going to be planted in uh, Ecuador. I really like these things, right? I mean, this is, this is what I talked about is connecting people directly to environmental outcomes. And blockchain, by being transparent, can do that. Now, I think there's a lot of overhype about blockchain. It's not always needed, but the it does demonstrate the power of how it can connect people directly to environmental outcomes so you have high certainty that what you're doing is actually making a positive positive environmental difference, which, like I said, 10, 15 years ago was very difficult to do. And now you can see it
0: almost the entire supply chain, which is remarkable. Thank you. And the second, my second favorite chapter title, uh, what the Flint water crisis and Thomas Edison have in common. So if you could just sort of tease that chapter a little bit. Yeah.
1: So I think a lot of people know about the Flint water crisis, Flint, Michigan. Um, they changed the source of their water, which caused lead in the pipes to reach out um, into uh, the community's water. And so you were getting lead in the water. You were getting rust. I mean, the, the water was you know brown. We saw a similar thing in Mississippi this year. So um, it's not extremely common, but it's not uncommon either. And the reason uh, I think that story is important is... That it shows that giving people power over their own environmental outcomes and environmental protection and clean water um, is more reliable than, like I said, than outsourcing it to politicians. So both the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality and the EPA really failed to act even when they knew things were going wrong in Flint. And one of the, I, I quote a an email from the regional department um, of the EPA where they are asked, maybe we can send people some filters or some things like that. And they say, well, we have this money. It's not really for that, but we could probably make a justification for it. And one of the people in the EPA actually said, I'm not sure Flint is the kind of community we want to go out on a limb for. Really <laughs> shocking stuff. So giving people tools to filters or to you know, manage how much water they use, that, those sorts of personal technologies exist. And I just wanted to make it clear to, to say, look, it's not that the EPA is bad. It's just that giving people more power is more reliable. And uh, with regard, that sort of local control is what I really like to, to focus on. And the same thing is true now. We have the opportunity to do much what Thomas Edison did with his first utility, where you know he provided electricity to sort of just a very small radius uh, of buildings. Now, individuals can do that with what are called smart grids. Um, and I talk about the Brooklyn smart grid in my book, where people have solar panels and they're selling electricity to their neighbors. Um, and it's kind of cool because one, it's renewable and two, you know, who's selling it to you. It's your neighbor. Um, so you can actually act as a utility in the same way that Thomas Edison did with his first power plant in New York City and and not too far away from from where he did it initially, that's happening. So that sort of local control is really cool. It gives you more confidence that your water is clean, that you know where your electricity is coming from and a lot of other things like that. And we can now do that with very simple technologies.
0: Well, thank you, and and finally, uh, and you're you're obviously well versed in all the intricacies and the new technology dealing with this really existential issue. Can you just leave our listeners with what it is that gives you, uh, in 2022, hope for the future? Yeah, like I said, I've worked in environmental
1: policy for more than two decades, and um, there's a lot of um, concern. And there's a lot of gloom and doom. Uh, in my book, I quote a guy named Tito Jankowski, who works on uh, carb, what's called carbon sequestration, which is pulling CO2 out of the air and storing it in the ground. And he says, there's this thing that environmentalists like to do is we get, we get together and we are overwhelmed together. <laughs> well, I think that rather than be overwhelmed, we should be empowered. And that's what these technologies are doing is that they're empowering us and they are solving some of the most Amazing, difficult problems we have. One of the coolest stories I have in my book is of a group called Plastic Bank, which is using small technologies and paying people to pick up plastic on beaches, just using smartphones and then paying them on smartphones. And then they recycle the plastic into Windex bottles. So if you buy a Windex bottle, you'll see it says made from ocean bound plastic. They've collected more than 3 billion plastic bottles just with that, just with smartphones and that simple technology. And it just gives you a, a, a taste of how powerful this is. That's why I have hope um, because there are so many people doing so many innovative things on problems that have really stymied politicians and governments for a long time. Um, and it's exciting to watch people out there doing it. And the other beautiful thing is, is that it crosses, it transcends uh, political lines. Um the, person who wrote the foreword to my book, Talia Speakers from the World Wildlife Fund. I tend to be more on the center right, but to, we both agree on these things. And you can find people across party lines working together on these issues because it's not driven by politics. It's driven by technology and results and empowerment. And that is something that can bring everybody together, which I think we desperately need, um, not just on the environment, but generally in politics today.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Todd, and thank you listeners for joining us. The book, again, is Todd Myers' Uh, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems, published by Imagine. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast.